thank you all for joining. Today we have the great honor and privilege of having Carrie Mitchell with us. Carrie was 45 when she was given the diagnosis, stage four non-small cell lung cancer with spread to the lymph nodes and brain metastasis. She had no symptoms other than a lump on her neck, which she had checked out by her general practitioner. Carrie is a wife, a mom of one daughter, and continues to work full time. Almost three years after diagnosis and after treatment of immunotherapy, a chemotherapy regimen, and cyberknife to the brain, Carrie is currently no evidence of active disease. Carrie is currently living a full life and working with others to support and raise awareness of lung cancer, particularly among younger women while trying to remove the stigma around smoking, as one just needs lungs to get lung cancer. Carrie, thank you so much for your time and your willingness to be here with us. We are really excited to have you and are so happy to hear that you are currently no evidence of active disease. So um, congratulations. Thank you. Wonderful. So to introduce myself and my team, my name is Priyanka Sensel, and with me I have Drake Long and Anish Gukulam, and we are part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, or ALSI for short. And we would like to take a few minutes to share about our, our organization and introduce lung cancer, lung cancer screening. ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness for lung cancer, lung cancer screening, and we're a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. Lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 70%. We believe that educating people about lung cancer, lung cancer screening, is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we've given over 250 presentations on lung cancer, lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the U.S., as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. Over the last year, we worked with over 345 mayors from every single U.S. state and Canada to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including multiple mayors, Arizona State Senator, Senator Leela Alston, who is a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and Lieutenant Governor of Colorado Diane Primavera to issue public service announcements emphasizing the importance of lung cancer screening. And in addition to our education, advocacy, and outreach efforts, we recently started a podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and advocates to share their stories. Elsie also worked with U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions, recognizing the importance of the early detection of lung cancer through screening. And in December 2022, the U.S. Senate passed a bipartisan resolution for the third year in a row, recognizing November 2022 as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month and expressing support for the early detection and treatment of lung cancer. Senate Resolution 863 expands on previous resolutions by emphasizing the need for efforts to increase awareness of screening among veterans, women, and racial minorities. Alcy also actively worked with Representative Brennan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine's Law for Lung Cancer, Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. So lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose computed tomography scan, 
And this scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, also known as the USPSTF, has guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer in the U.S. And right now, they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80 who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more and who currently smoke or have quit within the past 15 years get annual low-dose CT scans. One pack here is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year, and therefore 20 pack years can be met in a multitude of ways, including smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. If you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria discussed, please encourage them to take our lung cancer screening eligibility survey so that they can learn whether they are eligible and have the opportunity to connect with our team at ALSI to guide them through the screening process. And finally, we want to highlight there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to the lungs. It is important that we recognize these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So thank you everyone for listening to that quick introduction to lung cancer and lung cancer screening. Without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. We have a few questions prepared for Carrie, but we will also have a Q&A session at the end with questions from our live audience. So um, first off, Carrie, uh, we're so excited to have you. Could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your lung cancer journey? I'm Carrie. I'm, I'm a mum of one. I have a daughter that's 17 years old. I have a, a dog that's the princess and rules the house and married to uh, James, who is actually Australian. So we live in the UK here, just outside of about 10 minutes away from Windsor Castle. If you've sort of like seen any of the royal weddings, that that's just up the road. So it's a very country kind of area uh, where we live. I work full time uh, for a company called Oracle Corporation. I've worked there for about 15 years this time. And three years ago, uh, a couple of days ago, actually, it was my anniversary three years ago, I, I was told I had lung cancer after I'd gone to my GP with a lump in my neck. He he wasn't sure what it was and referred me to um, an ENT doctor who arranged for a biopsy done on the lump on the neck. And then when I went back in two weeks later, I was told I had lung cancer. But because it was an ENT doctor, that's all I knew at that stage. It wasn't until much later I I knew more about that diagnosis. So what was your experience like when you received your lung cancer diagnosis? What were the thoughts um, going through your mind? Horrific. It's it's your worst thing, isn't it? It's it and, and there's a little bit of hope thinking because I only had a, a lump on my my neck. I had no other symptoms. There was there was nothing obvious. It, you know, it could have just been one of those things. So I, I wasn't expecting it. And and actually later on when I met my oncologist, who is a fabulous woman, but at the time, you know, she said the words incurable. And and so you you've been given one blow. And then you're given another blow. And I think because, you know, not in that medical profession or anything like that, you hope everything's curable. You you hope that medicine has advanced that much that it's, you know, you've got lung cancer and this is what we're going to do. So then to hear the words incurable, it's like the tablecloth has just like been pulled away from you. So, yeah, you, you can't prepare for that. So you mentioned being told that it was incurable and obviously being prepared for that like you said is impossible so in what ways did your life change unexpectedly after being diagnosed with lung cancer 
it, it was a really strange period because three years ago as well was then March 2020. I think about a week after I'd met my oncologist, we went into lockdown. So, you know, the, the medical professions as well were were doing lots of things with COVID, so things were delayed. Forceful is probably the wrong word, but I, I was very persistent. You know, we need to do something, and we needed to do it quickly. I'd had a biopsy, you know, why were we waiting? So I think with me asking lots of questions and self-advocating, what are we going to do and when are we going to do it? Actually, maybe I've sped things up a little bit. I literally, had I been a couple of weeks later, I think it could have all been very different. But, but I'd already started on that journey before we'd gone into lockdown. It, it could have been awful. Yeah, that, that is really, really just interesting to hear just with COVID and, and all the restrictions that were placed. I'm sure that for a lot of patients who might have been diagnosed during the pandemic, their treatment plans were, were probably prolonged or, yeah. or delayed to some extent. And I think that definitely could have could have hurt outcomes. And so and we've also heard from a lot of other patients that just self-advocating is so important, especially with a disease like like lung cancer. Just we've heard a lot of stories from patients who have gone to their doctors knowing something was wrong, feeling that something was wrong in their body because you know patients know their own bodies best. Yeah. And so they knew something was off, but they weren't having any um major symptoms. It was maybe uh just shortness of breath here and there or just difficulty a breathing or tightness in the chest and it wasn't screaming out lung cancer and they were generally healthy and so it wasn't the first thing their their doctors turned to or they turned to um, themselves and so it yeah. was um if they hadn't really advocated for themselves and uh, and wanted more tests done it could have been very possible that their cancer would have been found at a much later stage yeah. and, and we've heard a lot of stories like that so I think you bring up a really important point on self-advocacy yeah yeah. And you mentioned that you received uh, immunotherapy, chemotherapy and CyberKnife to the brain. And could you yeah. explain uh, what CyberKnife is to people who may not know what that is? Yes, so CyberKnife is a type of radiotherapy, but I believe it's, it's, a, it's a much higher concentration. So there's lots more sort of like X-ray machine bits in this machine that's like a robot arm that just goes around but because of its precision with all the different x-rays they're actually able to give you a much much higher dose of the treatment than a, a traditional radiotherapy I've never had traditional radiotherapy but you know I was fortunate we only have three cyber knife machines available on the National Health Service in the UK um, so I was very fortunate to be able to actually get that treatment uh, at the Royal Marsden in London. And, and for me, all it was was sitting on a table for 45 minutes while this robot just literally went around me. I, I had a, a, a mask on. And then after 45 minutes, I walked out, I went home, I went to sleep and the follow up scan was um, complete response. I was very, very fortunate at that stage. And also when it had gone to the brain, it was really, really early stages because the first MRI, they weren't even sure whether it had gone there or not because it was so small. So it was really effective and, and, and worked really well for me. If you feel comfortable sharing um, in terms of immunotherapy and chemotherapy, um, did you experience any complications or side effects following your treatment? 
Yeah, so um, through the treatment itself, I was absolutely fine. I had um, three three rounds of, initially I had three rounds of double chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And then I went on to what they call maintenance, which was one chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And I had it every three weeks. And, you know, day to day, absolutely fine. I think probably the biggest side effects for me personally was the uh, steroids you have to take before you can have the treatment. So actually, it can give you a lot of false energy and you feel absolutely fine. You feel brilliant. You've gone and had this treatment and you come away and you, you feel fine for a couple of days. And then when you stop the um, treatment, I, I used to say on day five, I'd hit a wall. I'd be very, very tired. Um, but apart from that, I was very fortunate. I wasn't sick or anything like that. Um, but then unfortunately, after the eighth round, I had very, very bad diarrhea as a side effect and had that checked out. And it transpired after lots of tests and everything else that I developed stage four colitis, which had I have had any more treatment, it potentially could kill you um, because it was it was toxic. My uh my oncologist said you know it's like your uh, immune system that went into overdrive and it started killing your healthy cells as well and that's why I developed colitis so I had to stop after eight rounds and subsequently because the colitis was so bad I can never have that treatment again if if the cancer wakes up and starts doing anything I it would be detrimental to me to to have that treatment but similarly my oncologist said you know sometimes ironically that can be a good thing because your immune system has gone into overdrive so it's I I liken it to I think I like had a hard set reboot that you know it was like shut it all down and then start again and and um yeah so but the day-to-day stuff no I was fine just took eight eight rounds and then I really was not fine Well, that that is wonderful to hear. We're really happy that um, you had a positive experience for up a, for the most part up until yeah. the end. <laughs> for patients with advanced lung cancer, when they hear about chemotherapy, especially, they get really worried because um, you know it, it's oftentimes associated with hair loss and just feeling really weak. And I think there for a lot of individuals, it's not as positive of a story. And so, what advice do you have for maybe other patients, not not necessarily with just lung cancer, but any cancer who might need to undergo chemotherapy or these other treatment regimens, how can they mentally, physically, and emotionally prepare for this journey? The mind is sort of like a powerful thing, isn't it? So, you know, anything my oncologist said, I, I took literally, you know, had my oncologist said, right, do a headstand every day for five minutes, I literally would have done that. I would have worked out how to do that. You know, one of the things she said, she said, now is not the time to go on a diet. Now is not the time to cut out sugar. Now is not, you need your strengths. You need to eat everything. You know, you need to be strong and, and gain weight. So I did, and I, I looked for, you know, foods that are meant to be good for for lung cancer and just thought well I'll have smoothies with all of these fruit things and you know I think mentally you're just thinking I'm doing it as much as I can to prepare myself I took up walking and I would walk for an hour every day and try and get myself out of breath because then I was thinking well it's gonna you know exercise my lungs so I think you, you have got a choice you you can either sit in the corner and go poor me oh gosh this is awful or you can you can't control your treatment because you trust your oncology and your medical team to do that for you but you can control how you're going to then be while all of this is going on 
to you know keep you happy and mentally okay you know and also allowing yourself just to you know have to cry and get frustrated and stuff you know that's that's really normal a lot of people we talk to mention that because of the shock that they're in initially they don't necessarily know how to talk to their pcp and what questions to ask so what advice would you give to someone newly diagnosed <clears throat> to ask or prepare for speaking with their pcp i think sorry what's a pcp it might be an american term <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. A uh, primary, your primary care physician. Okay, cool. Yeah. So again, it's it's doing research, but doing it in what I would call the safe site. So you know, don't go to Doctor Google because that's really not a safe place to go. My husband and my sister did a lot of research for me on you know core core sites and also looking at patient stories that was huge for me um and gave me a lot of hope understanding what other people's journeys were what treatment they had so I have like a a file on my phone I'll be what about this what about this why are we not doing surgery why are we not kind of out well will we do radiotherapy why aren't we doing radiotherapy you know it was like help me understand why you're why you're making your choices and then I think you get a gut feel I think for your medical team I, I got a gut feel. I was like, okay, I don't like what she's saying. She told me like it's incurable, but I, I very much came away going, but she knows her stuff. She, she absolutely knows her stuff, and I'm absolutely going to put my trust in her because I know, you know, you, I just sense she's absolutely going to do the best for me. So you know, do 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 your research at safe sites. Uh, look at other other patient stories, what treatment they had. I used. Not at the start, but now like Instagram a lot, because I think you get quite a lot of information on there outside of notice boards that might be on some other social media. Um, And just ask the questions. Because sometimes I think they forget, you know, they're there to fix you as much as possible. And they probably maybe focus on that, which is right. (laughs) But maybe don't talk about, you know, why they're not doing other things. So just ask the questions. Yeah, I think that is really great advice. And you had mentioned just connecting with other patients. And I think um, if you're able to connect with other patient groups and just individuals who have gone through something similar, even if it's not the exact same type of lung cancer yeah. or same stage, just talking with someone who's you know been through it, been through similar emotions, I think that is very helpful. And there are a lot of accounts on Twitter and Instagram where people are sharing their story publicly and um, you know are wanting to create this community. So I think you know social media is a great way to get connected and then as you had mentioned it's really important to find you know you the care team that's right for you and that might you know some patients are fortunate to find their care team immediately but for other patients it might take a second opinion and so a, a lot of patients have said that you know they are glad that they, they went to get a second opinion and just felt more confident about their treatment plan and and felt like they had a, a better holistic um, view of of everything so um, yeah I think that is wonderful advice yeah yeah and so switching gears a little bit um, we wanted to ask if you could share what lung cancer screening like looks like in the UK so um, in the US we have a national we have a national lung cancer screening guideline set up by the United States Preventive Services Task Force which we had talked about at the beginning of the podcast and so we wanted to ask are there national lung cancer screening guidelines in the UK and are there lung cancer screening programs in the UK like there are um, in the US? Yeah so so there 
is a lung cancer screening in the UK. I don't know lots about it. So it's part of the National Health Service and they target people between the ages of 55 and 75 that have smoked. So that's the criteria. They don't, they don't specify how many you've got to have smoked and how long, you know, that you just have a history of smoking, whether currently smoke or, or, or prior smoking. And, and then you will be invited to have screening because you're at that risk group. And, and that's it. That's just, that's just open nationwide in the same way for mammograms for women over 50, I think it is. So it's, you know, you will be invited, you know, we've identified that you're in this group and you're invited to, to come and have some screening and that's based on the medical records. Currently, lung cancer is often known as, you know, the smoker's disease, and there's a lot of stigma surrounding lung cancer. But like you said at the beginning, um, you know, anyone with lungs can have lung cancer. So did you have any misconceptions about lung cancer prior to being diagnosed? Uh, yeah, I thought it was the same as the stigma. I thought you had to be old and, and predominantly male and a smoker. And it was, I think it was my, I had a, a, an ENT and was the original doctor. Then it was a respiratory consultant and then my oncologist. But the respiratory consultant, he did say to me, yours is the no smoking, non-smoking one. Because I did have a history of smoking. Although I'd given up 10 years before, I did have a history. And he said quite quickly, it's got nothing to do with smoking your, your lung cancer. So don't be beating yourself up kind of thing about it but there is that perception and 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 I think it's probably still still more common maybe in older people obviously with with a history of smoking but I've met um a lot of people particularly women and they're young women and they've got no the majority of them have got no history of smoking so the stigma really for me doesn't reflect the reality had you heard about lung cancer screening before and did you have any concerns about it? No, I'd never heard of it before. Wasn't aware. I, I think I was probably aware that if you went to the doctor with a history of smoking and you had a cough that wouldn't go away, they'd potentially send you for an x-ray as a as a precaution. But no, apart from that, no, not really. I think it's still quite a recent thing here, here in the UK. But actually, it's a great thing from stories I have seen. I read a couple of stories about people that did take up the invitation to be screened because they fitted into the risk category. And actually, they did end up having lung cancer because of the screening. They were identified at either stage one or stage two, which, you know, is brilliant because that's very much curative uh, caught at the early stage. So, you know. That's fantastic from so many things, obviously, you know, we all know for lung cancer, normally the symptoms come when you are at stage four and, and anything before that, well, to get stage one or two, it's, it's normally discovered by accident. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. You know, we know lung cancer screening is really effective in helping you to catch lung cancers early and then as a result, also reduce lung cancer mortality. But a lot of people um, in the U.S. and, you know, in, in other countries don't know about lung cancer screening. And and even for individuals who have heard about lung cancer screening or, or know something like that might exist, they don't know the exact criteria and what 
who should be getting screened and and, and what um, the risk factors are for lung cancer. So it's difficult to know, like, you know, am I eligible for lung cancer screening? Are my family, friends, are they eligible for lung cancer screening? And so I think that is one of the major contributors to the low uptake of lung cancer screening in the U.S. and, and other countries is just a lack of um, awareness. And I think we've made a great progress in uh, other cancers like breast cancer, especially I'm not sure what it's like in the U.K., but there's a, a really great awareness around lung breast cancer screening as well as cervical cancer screening yeah. and some of these other common cancers. And for a lot of patients, they're, they usually will, you know, have, they'll usually talk to their PCP about this during their visits, especially if they um, are, you know, for breast cancer women after a certain age, you know, they have, this is a, a conversation that they have routinely with their, um, with their physicians. And that same level of awareness hasn't been reached for lung cancer. And I think if we're able to, if we're able to get it to that level where uh, doctors and physicians, any healthcare provider, you know, knows about lung cancer screening, knows about the guidelines, knows who needs to get screened, and are able to talk to patients about getting screened who are at high risk, that can really help to increase the lung cancer screening rate because right now for many patients, they're having to, they're hearing about lung cancer screening through other venues and then going to their physician and saying, you know, I think I might be eligible. Can I get screened? And it really shouldn't be the, the patient's burden to ask about screening, but should be something that healthcare providers are all educated about and are able to identify those who might be, who might benefit from screening. So I, I definitely think that hopefully in the future, we're, we're able to, raise awareness and, and education to, to that extent where we're able to, we're able to identify and patients might benefit. Yeah. And I think, I think as well, because your guidelines are very similar to ours on the screening, but then we also have some other guidelines for the NHS. If you present with a number of symptoms, depending on your age and your smoking or non-smoking history, depends on whether you will get referred for further tests so at the moment in the UK if you're under 40 you don't really qualify they don't think that you might have lung cancer because on the guidelines you have you know if you're over 40 you need to present yourself I think it's with like two or three symptoms before then screening happens but if you have a history of smoking I think you only have to present with one so so the guidelines are quite different if you are presenting with symptoms and and I think um exactly to your point if if we can help educate the healthcare sector more that actually you don't have to be over a certain age and you don't have to have uh you know a history of smoking then I think more people would get diagnosed as well um and not misdiagnosed right yeah and, and I know we talked about uh the stigma earlier and I think stigma unfortunately you know it still exists around lung cancer and and that stigma I know for for some individuals it is a point of hesitancy to get screened or, or to even talk to their physician about lung cancer screenings and you know if if they do end up getting a diagnosis that that you know that diagnosis might you know come with a lot of shame and, and guilt for that individual given the stigma yeah. around the disease and I, so I think it's so important that we raise awareness that while smoking is the primary risk factor for lung cancer, a lot of individuals who um, are diagnosed with lung cancer, upwards of 10 to 20 percent in the U.S. have never smoked. And even for individuals who might have a smoking history, you know, their lung cancer, like, you know, in, in, as in your case, for example, might not be due to their smoking. And um, yeah. I think it's also for individuals who haven't undergone that 
that struggle, it's really difficult to understand that you know, smoking is a is an addiction and it's really hard to quit smoking. It's not just, you know, about willpower or wanting or how much an individual wants to quit, but you know, it the the effects of withdrawal, you know, are physical, emotional, and mental. And so it it really is more than just, you know, a person's desire to quit. So I think just opening up conversations about that and and really being careful about the way we talk about lung cancer and even moving towards patient first language instead of talking about individuals as, you know, a a 50-year-old smoker or something like that, you know, moving more towards person first language where we talk about where we say instead, um, you know, a 50-year-old individual who has been smoking. So something, just changing our language and, and the way we approach lung cancer, I think, can really help make it less of a, make screening, just open up screening more for individuals and not have to worry about, you know, maybe some of the societal repercussions that might come from from a diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's very true. I mean, I, I listened to a professor on a, on a, a call um some time ago and you know he just said you're just unlucky you know not everyone that smokes get lung gets lung cancer and then obviously people that don't smoke get lung cancer so you, you are just unlucky but on the stigma side of things I had a conversation with the doctor not that long ago actually and they were asking about family history of illnesses and my mother had uh bowel cancer and my father had had throat cancer and and then I said about my lung cancer with all the other ones they were like oh oh and then I said lung cancer and they said do you smoke and 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 that was a doctor and I and I did think you you had no comment about all the other cancers but you did on the lung cancer one about smoking so it's gonna take a long time to get rid of that stigma Right, absolutely. And and as you yeah, as as in your example, it's not just community members, but but even, you know, within within the medical field, it I think it's we're gonna need to do a lot of edu- education and, and just discussion, mm-hmm. but it's not it's yeah. not, you know, it, it's also prevalent, unfortunately, in, in the medical field. Yeah. Yeah. And so um we wanted to ask what motivates you to share your lung cancer story so publicly, because you know, it is a very personal story and I'm sure it's you know, not an easy one to recollect or talk about. And so what what motivates you to share your story um, openly? I think what, what it is, it's one about the awareness and to give other people hope in the same way. I'm, I'm a true believer in the word like pay it forward. Uh, you know, I, I was seeking out the stories of the younger women that had got lung cancer and wanting to sort of like look for stories of hope and good news stories, you know, because they give you a positive sort of like feeling about what what you know could be so therefore you know when I was comfortable talking about it and it did take me a while to be I wouldn't even say comfortable be able to talk about it then I did it in what I thought was a safe way I did it on a social platform then I could kind of like, right, okay, let's put my feelings all out there and just chuck it there. And and then people would say, well, that's really helpful. That really helped me or that really helped my mom. I was like, okay, well, if that, if that helps, if my story helps some, you know, one other person, then that's a good thing. And, you know, we naturally all get these endorphins anyway, feel good things if, if we know we've helped somebody. So, you know, Nobody wants to be famous for cancer. So it's not it's not about like get yourself on social media, you know. But if if your journey 
can help somebody else to challenge even their their diagnosis or their treatment plan if it doesn't feel right then then that's good we really admire your efforts in the lung cancer community so could you please describe some of the things you are currently done or have done in the lung cancer community is it in my own part i've done some like fundraising i took up swimming and took on some swimming challenges to raise funds for roy castle lung cancer foundation which is a, a major charity in the uk focused on on lung cancer and helps drive screening programs and works very closely with the nhs with with certain initiatives so i started doing things there on um fundraising but also did patient stories for them because that's actually where i went and read my first stories looking at other people and then i found on instagram started to find people on instagram other you know women similar to myself with their stories about lung cancer and then more recently in the last six months, there is a group of us that talk quite regularly, all women, all, you know, stage four lung cancer. And, and we've got a little community going and we try and pull together things that we find out or we know to try and let other people know what they are, you know, whether it's there's a new drug coming or, you know, uh, there's a new campaign or, or whatever it is, just, just trying to put information out there that might help other people or, or give them hope and it it's really you know talking to other people in a similar situation of a similar demographic it's quite good because they get it <laughs> it's you know yeah you know your friends and family are obviously super brilliant and super supportive and but this other like little community they they get it they get all the like you know the highs and the lows kind of thing that that we go through every three months <laughs> So on the note of your friends and family, for someone who has a loved one who recently was diagnosed with lung cancer, do you have any advice for how they can best support and help them? I think it's down to the individual, really. I know my husband wanted to fix me. So he would he would be researching all of the time, all of the time, all of the time. You know, here's a new thing here. Here's something in this country. And that 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 made him, you know, that's how he could contribute. That's how he could try and help and fix me. Whereas my sister, say, for example, would go, what do, you, what do you need me to do? You know, I, I've looked at this and I've found out about your treatment and all of this kind of stuff and like feed me the good news things. So I think, yeah, I mean, it, it's just awful for the family as well. You know, you all go through it. And actually, well, I know I was pretty grumpy and irritable and everything like that, you know. We don't mean it as well. So just, you know, sometimes let us rant or, you know, blow our gasket and stuff. It's, you know, we're struggling. We're struggling. It's come new to all of us. So, you know, just being there, bring them a cup of tea. <laughs> Say, what is it you need me to do? <laughs> Go for what? Everyone's going to be different. They really are. But I guess asking, you know, the individual, what is it that you need me to do to help you? And it could be one of many different things. Yeah, it might just be, just sit here and hold my hand. I'm just going to sit here and cry for 10 minutes. That might be exactly what they need. Right. Yeah, that was very well said. Sometimes it's just the the small things that really make a difference. So having cancer changes so much about life in general. And so what words of wisdom do you have for people post-cancer as far as being able to live a full life once more? It would be take control where you can. 
you're you're not the doctor that's going to give you the the treatment regime to fix you so take the control where you can and what's going to make you happy because whilst positivity is not going to cure you it actually is going to help you if you if you've got sort of like you know a, a positive outlook that actually day to day I think it probably makes things a lot easier I personally I try and do something that you know I really enjoy every day. So the the little things that maybe I used to take for granted, I do them in a slightly different way now and, you know, kind of special. And if in certain ways, you're lucky because all the things that you might have put off for another day, you go, okay, let's do them now. Why, why are we saving these things for best? You know, let's just do it now. Go to that restaurant put on that top or whatever when you're in the kitchen you know we all had covid you know dress up do whatever it is that's going to make you happy even if it's little things so we will now be moving on to a couple of questions submitted by the general public and alci members so for our first question do you have any advice for people looking to get involved in the lung cancer community yeah, I mean, if you want to look look at the charities, you know, that's a really great way. Most charities look for advocates. So people, you know, and they will look for various different people. They'll look for people that are just starting on their lung cancer journey or friends and family of, you know, there will be lots of different roles that you can play that will really help charities. And normally if you if you start to do things with the charity, they then might start putting you in touch with other people. And, you know, you can do as much or as little as you like. But find find a charity that's close to you ge- geographically or, or or of particular interest to you um, and just ask them, how, how can I help? How can we best educate the upcoming generation about lung cancer screening? I think it's about the self-advocation again and about you know your body better than anybody else. So if you're going to a doctor and there's something wrong and they say you're too young for this or you're too fit or you're too healthy, but you know it's not right, you are really going to have to like persevere and, and make sure that your voice is heard. So, you know, trust your instincts and and self-advocate. We're, for the next generation, you know, technology helps us a lot because there's a lot of information out there instantly. <laughs> do your research self-advocate you know unfortunately you know you're never too old never too young to get cancer you're gonna get you're just unlucky wonderful and this is a a tough question but if you have to summarize your journey in one sentence what would that be in one sentence yeah (laughs) it's a terrifying one sentence I'm just trying to think it is a terrifying like black hole that you 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 go down but actually when you're going down this black hole there are bits of light along the way that is really quite nice as well but yeah no it's not a positive it's terrifying it's terrifying somebody's told you you're not going to get to be like 90 more than likely you you are going to die sooner than that that's that's not yeah sorry you asked for a sentence I just (laughs) No, <laughs> that's that's perfect. Thank you. And so for our last question, uh, before we wrap up our podcast, we wanted to ask, what are you looking forward to most in the next couple of months? Holidays. <laughs> holidays, holidays, holidays. So, yeah, 
you know, I had a big, you know, always wanted to go to this country or that country. I do it now. So this is the thing about don't save it till like best. I do it now. All the countries that I want to see, I go and do them. So, um, yeah, I have a few trips planned that I'm really looking forward to of places on my living list. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carrie, for taking time out of your day to share your story with us. We really appreciate all the work that you're doing to help raise awareness about lung cancer. And thank you everyone for joining our podcast. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcast and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alcsi.org. In a few weeks, we'll be having a podcast with Dr. Gerald Winehouse, a pulmonologist and medical director of respiratory care services at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Zoom registration and information on our upcoming podcast can be found on our website under calendar events or in our Instagram bio. Thank you and have a great day, everyone.